Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. I've noticed that there is, uh, I, I would argue, no greater display of passion than a parent in pursuit of their lost child. Now, by God's grace, we've never had an extended experience of this with our own kids, but you know, even a momentary taste of it is enough to send you running through walls to find them. So you turn around in the grocery store, you realize that your toddler has taken off in search of something shiny, and it feels like all time stops. And you immediately panic as you begin replaying every child abduction movie you have ever seen. And just that enough is to turn any parent into Jason Bourne. It just happens in a moment. Nothing will stand in your way, and it is on. And so you run up and down aisles. You're completely unconcerned, completely indifferent to what anyone thinks about you in that moment. You have this singular objective of finding your kid. I have never been more focused I've never been more determined or more driven than in one of those moments of trying to find that most precious person in my life. There is no greater display of passion I know than a parent in pursuit of their lost child. And I want to start here this morning because the scriptures scream the soul-stirring promise that God has pursued his creation since the very moment that we sought to hide from him. A.W. Tozer famously wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would second that pointed sentiment with this. One of the most constant and clearly displayed aspects of God's character in scripture is one of patient pursuer. I referenced this last week, but in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus himself says, the son of man, so he's speaking of himself, he said, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Furthermore, if we go back to Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables back to back to back to solidify our perception of God's pursuing nature. If you've never read Luke 15, I'd invite you later to go read those parables because they all lift up God as a patient pursuer. But the truth is, it's not just like a New Testament thing. This has been God's character. This has been God's nature. God started pursuing humanity the moment that we started hiding from him. And so this morning, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 3, the same place we were last week. And this week, rather than focus on our experience of shame in the example of Adam and Eve. This week, I want to look at God's pursuing response to Adam and Eve when they chose to hide in their shame in the exact same way that you and I are prone to hide in the midst of ours. And so if you have a Bible or a mobile app that you'd like to read on, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 3. We are going to start in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible this morning, the scripture will be on the screen, but everyone go to Genesis chapter 3. This is uh, called Hiding from God. This is part two of a two-part message. And so let me read these verses so we're reminded of what happens here. Genesis chapter three, beginning in verse seven. Then the eyes 
of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, "Who, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? All right, so remember, God had created Adam and Eve for connection and creativity. And then he placed them in Eden, an ideal garden environment to flourish on both of those fronts. He gave them immense freedom and only one protective command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But like children who disobey the moment their parents' back is turned, Adam and Eve believe the lies of the serpent and they eat from that one tree. And their eyes are opened and they feel deep and crushing shame as a result of their nakedness. And so they covered themselves with these makeshift clothes and then they hid at the very first sound of God in the garden. Now, if I was going to summarize what we learn about God's response in our hiding, this is the way that I would say it. God's intent is to draw us rather than drive us out of hiding. And that's significant. God's intent is to draw us rather than drive us out of hiding. Because what I want you to notice in these verses is that God does not march into the garden screaming angrily, swinging a club at every single bush in an attempt to drive them out of their hiding spot. And I think that needs to be pointed out because that is the image that shame paints in our minds. So God was not screaming at them, but make no mistake, shame was. Brene Brown reminds us shame is a fear. Ultimately, it's a fear of disconnection. And so shame was screaming of this disconnection in their ears. You are naked and not enough. You have blown it and God is coming to not only kick you out of this garden, but to cut you off from relationship. He will never love you and he will never live with you now. But the truth is, if we read the story, that's not God's tone. And that is not God's tactic for dealing with what they'd done and the shame that it created. Instead, God draws them out with this very caring and careful line of questioning. See, driving someone out of hiding is qualitatively different than seeking to draw them out. And this is something I'm trying to grow in personally as a pastor. um, I'm privileged to spend a fair amount of time each week providing counsel and guidance to many people in our church. And, And I think early on in ministry, I was like objectively a bad counselor, just not being mean to myself, not being harsh. If you're like, no, I bet you were, I don't think I was good at it objectively. And not because I was mean, not because I lacked a desire to be able to provide helpful insight to people, not because I did not love people or care. I just spent a lot more time trying to drive people rather than draw them out. 
And so the way that it would work is I would like listen to someone talk for like five minutes, immediately diagnose their problem, quickly provide them with a very simple step-by-step solution that if they applied it upon leaving would solve all their problems instantaneously because that's how counseling works. And so especially in my youth and immaturity, that was my approach to it. And the truth is, being in therapy myself has really, really helped me on this front. Because as, as I've built a relationship with my own therapist, Nancy, over the last year and a half, I've noticed something. I have never once in a year and a half sat down, had her look at me and say, you know, it's, it's been a long week and I just don't have the energy to listen to you whine today. And so here's your problem. You walk through immense trauma in childhood, You've had decades of loss and disappointment, and rather than process any of it, you pretended like everything was great. So um, that's the problem, and uh, I will charge your credit card on your way home. It will be just fine. We'll see you next week. I've never had that experience. Instead, what happens is every single week I sit down, and she prays for me, and she invites the Holy Spirit to be part of our conversation and to lead it. She says amen, and then she looks at me compassionately, and silently, and waits for me to talk. And it is the most awkward moment of my entire week. Every week, I'm like, hey, there's nothing that you can like kick this off, not how are you, there's nothing, you're just gonna sit and wait for me to talk. And some weeks I literally wanna crawl under this couch and hide. But I've noticed that Like God in this garden, her goal is to draw me out rather than to drive me out. So she asks caring and careful questions, and God does the same. In fact, notice that God asks three questions. Where are you? To which Adam confesses fear due to the shame of his nakedness. God then says, who told you that you were naked? And then thirdly, did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And because we follow the example of Adam and Eve hiding in various ways due to our own shame, I want us to consider these three questions that God asked them. So let me give you this morning three questions that God asks in our shame. Okay, if you like to take notes and write things down, make a note of these three questions that God asks us in our shame. Number one is this, where are you hiding? Where are you hiding? Now, we don't know for sure because the text does not explicitly tell us, but it seems to imply that it was normal for God to walk with Adam and Eve in this garden. And so when God doesn't find them, as usual, he calls out to Adam in verse 9, asking, where are you? But this question was far deeper than mere geography, In his book, The Soul of Shame, Dr. Kurt Thompson observes this of God's question. Quote, God is inquiring of the couple's internal, not their external whereabouts. He is deeply curious about and invested in their individual and corporate states of mind. This is what the God of the biblical narrative does. He pursues, he comes to find us, end quote. So listen, we will always struggle to experience intimacy with God if we do not choose to trust this to be true. Our deepest days with God are ahead if we choose to run to him as our patient pursuer. But that demands honestly answering God's question, where are you? 
More specifically, where are you hiding? And there is an almost infinite number of ways that we hide from God, hide from one another, and I would argue even hide from ourselves. Some of us hide behind selective perfectionism. So we try to accentuate what we're good at, and we avoid the things that we're not. So maybe you worked like so hard or worked so hard to get perfect grades in school, never outwardly disobey authority, work hard to be perfect in the workplace, have a pristine home with nothing out of place or live an openly, outwardly righteous life that appears altogether. And don't, don't misunderstand, um, the pursuit of excellence is a noble virtue. It definitely is. But striving perfer- for perfection is more often a means of hiding shame that haunts us. The intrinsic response to shame is one of self-righteousness. Now, when we hear the term self-righteousness, we tend to think the overtly religious, pharisaical legalism that we see in the Gospels, but it's also propping up parts of life that we deem acceptable and diminishing the parts that we deem unacceptable. And so even though the shell looks different, it's still self-righteousness. Others of us hide behind endless activity. We are on the go from sunup to sundown, no days off, always on the move, never at rest, because if we stop, we'd be overwhelmed by the shame that we are running from. Some of us hide by self-medicating through drugs, alcohol, food, endless entertainment. There are countless places that we learn to hide from God and others. And as I've continued to say, the most dangerous aspect of this is that we often become so accustomed to our hiding, we don't even realize we're doing it. And so intimacy with God is going to demand the difficult work of examining our hearts, our minds, and our practices in order to identify where we're prone to hide and then talking with God openly about that. We're looking at these three questions that God asks in our shame. Number one is, where are you hiding? Number two is, to whom are you listening? To whom are you listening? In verse 10, remember, Adam answers God, confessing his fear of rejection due to the shame of being naked. But remember, nothing had changed in this moment in Adam and Eve's outward condition. They were created naked and they had lived naked. But up until that moment, They'd felt zero shame due to their nakedness. But then all of a sudden, Adam looks at his condition and he feels shame. And upon hearing this, you would expect God's first question to be, what have you done? What have you done that has made you realize this? But I want you to notice, while God is going to ask that question, notice his first concern is actually relational. He doesn't lead with the what, he leads with a who. God says, who told you that you were naked? God's asking Adam who he has been listening to. And and here's why that's such a critical question. Very little shapes us more than the voices we listen to. Very little shapes us more than the voices we listen to. So many of these shaming scripts that we believe are the consequence of shaming words that have been spoken over us. So maybe at some point in your life, you have been told that you're worthless, that you're a mistake, that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, 
not strong enough, not attractive enough, not thin enough. And when these destructive words take root in our souls, they bear the fruit of shame. But the truth is, sometimes it's not just the words of others that we've listened to, but also the actions of others against us. I'll give you an example. When you are abandoned by a primary caregiver as a child, it has a profound impact on everything about you. And so in my case, it was my biological dad. As most of you know, he left when I was young, and my mom was pregnant with my younger brother. And my mom says that on the day that he left uh, for the last time, she had to pry my fingernails from the windowsill as I cried in confusion watching my dad leave for the last time. Now, when someone of that significance makes a decision like that, it's virtually impossible to not believe that there is something about you that isn't worth staying for. Now, obviously, cognitively, I understand that he didn't leave because of me. I understand he had his own issues and that his decision to leave was about him. It wasn't about me, but I have to tell you, it does not feel like that. There is this mark on your soul that always feels there's something about me that was not worth staying for. And so whether it's literal words or unspoken actions, little shapes us more than these voices that we listen to. And Adam and Eve chose to ignore the voice of God when they chose to believe the voice of the serpent. And the one thing that heals the wounds of the words that have been spoken over us is learning to not only listen to, but to actually believe the voice of God. Because God says that you are loved. And God says that you can be forgiven. God says that you can be free, that you are welcome, that you can be accepted. God says that you can belong that he will never leave you nor forsake you. God says that your past need not be predictive of your future. God says that there is a way forward. And so the question is, to whom are you listening? Now notice this third question that God asks in our shame is this. How are you not trusting me? How are you not trusting me? After asking Adam about the who, God does then turn to the what? He says, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And I want you to, to understand that this question is so much deeper than just, did you break my rule? Because there's a way that we can read it that is just as simple as that. Did you break my rule? But this is a question flowing from the broken heart of a loving father who has not been trusted. When God created Adam and Eve, he provided for them, giving them identity, purpose, and meaning. And he also gave them loving instruction that was meant for their flourishing. And when that serpent slithered into the garden, a competing and contradictory identity, purpose, and meaning came with him. And that left Adam and Eve with a choice of trust. Would they trust God and what he had said, or would they trust this other voice? And they chose like we often choose, to trust the latter. And the truth is we will never, we will never fully understand the nature of sin until we see this. 
The source of our sin is a failure to trust God. Every time we sin, we choose to not trust that God knows best. Every time we sin, we choose to not trust that God desires our best. So either we don't trust his perspective or we do not trust his intent. But either way, it's an issue of trust before anything else. And so if we're, if we're going to combat the shame that drives us into hiding and hinders our relationship with God, we have to face these areas that we are not walking and trusting a relationship with God and then choose to trust him. And that is repentance. So when we're mired in shame, God draws us rather than drives us out asking, where are you hiding? To whom are you listening? And how are you not trusting me? In his beautiful book, Abba's Child, Brennan Manning, if you've not read this book, I cannot recommend it enough. Brennan Manning writes this. He said, God calls us to stop hiding and to come openly to him. God is the father who ran to his prodigal son when he came limping home. God weeps over us when shame and self-hatred immobilizes us. Yet as soon as we lose our nerve about ourselves, we take cover. Adam and Eve hid, and we all, in one way or another, have used them as role models. Why? Because we do not like what we see. It is uncomfortable, intolerable, to confront our true selves. So the invitation from God when we are drowning in shame is to come out of hiding and to find healing. And you know, this is why Jesus is such good news for us. The sacrifice of Christ has dealt the ultimate blow to our shame. And through faith in Jesus, the scriptures say we are sealed in him, becoming welcomed into healing, redeeming, and renewing relationship with God. And the more deeply and openly we learn to walk with him, the more we live from our true selves rather than our shame-ridden false selves. And so this week, I want to encourage you to keep these three questions front of mind. Write them down, put them somewhere that you can see them, put them in your Bible, in the bathroom mirror, maybe on your desk, at work. And let's do the work of really reflecting on these questions. And as answers begin to surface, step out and talk to God about it honestly. Because as we do this work, we will go deeper in God. God's intent is to draw us rather than drive us out of hiding. And so let's run to him and find his healing, mercy, and grace. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we want to do this. We want to live openly with you. We want to live in the open with you. We don't want to hide. We don't want to be so driven by our shame that we would close ourselves off from you or close ourselves off from one another. And so we just openly acknowledge, despite that desire, how difficult the courage and strength is to step out into the open. And so I pray more than anything else this morning, Lord, that you would shape our perception of you that you would help us to see that you are, in fact, a safe place for us to be open, 
that we need not hide from you. Father, I pray for anyone listening this morning who does not know you, has not put their faith in you, and is not walking with you, I pray that you would open their hearts to faith, that they would turn from not trusting you, the way that we see Adam and Eve not trust you, and they would choose trust and put their faith in Jesus, believing that he lived, died, and rose again to pay for our sin and to deal with our shame. And I pray that healing and hope would return. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.